Heavenly Father, we thank you for this week. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has been present as our teacher. We thank you for the church and for the mission that you have given to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And we pray that we would be found faithful and that we would faithfully stand on the word of God until the end. In Jesus' name, amen. For the sake of those of you that were not here on the first day and haven't heard it before, I want to read again that statement from Ellen White that really inspired this series and the way that they turned out. Because what we have been talking about is not only the history of the Reformation, but its meaning for the Seventh-day Adventist Church for today. It comes from Great Controversy, page 126, where she wrote, At Wittenberg, a light was kindled whose rays should extend to the uttermost parts of the earth and which was to increase in brightness to the close of time. Those of you that have been here all week have heard me say more than once that the Reformation is not over. There are people today that are saying that it was a mistake, was just the opinion of one man, and that it's all over. It's not. Ellen White was right. It's supposed to increase in brightness until the close of time. And that is precisely the mission that God has given to this church. There is work to be done yet. And God has chosen a people to do it. As I mentioned, this church emerged out of Protestantism in the 18th century because God knew what was coming. And he needed a church, a people, to be ready to do the work that is required in the time of the end and in the midst of what is happening today. Because at the time of the Reformation, the conflict, the, the issue about the authority of the Word of God was between the Reformers and Catholicism. Today, it is within Protestantism. Now, when I talk about the fact that God has chosen this church to do this work, I say that humbly, not boastfully, because there is a price to pay for faithfulness. A Seventh-day Adventist church may very well be the lone voice in the context of churches that are capitulating to culture as they have become increasingly acclimated to culture. The most recent example being that of the United Methodist Church, which has recently consecrated a lesbian as bishop. And the reaction to that within the United Methodist Church 
has been that there is talk of schism. Pardon? Split. Division. And recently I read the news that one of the biggest United Methodist churches in the country, I think it was somewhere in Mississippi, has already voted to leave the denomination. You know, part of the ethos of the time of trouble is that faithful believers are in conflict with the world and with worldliness, and that they envision the church of Christ to be a holy community, set apart, different from the world, obviously different, transformed. And in the struggle to stay true to the word of God, the value of unity and like-minded Christian friends is boundless. We have to be united. And the word of God says, the Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And uh, Philippians... Chapter 1, beginning with verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. That's Paul. Philippians 1. 27 through 30. As I said, the authority of God's word was the issue at the time of the Reformation, and it is still the issue today. But now, sadly, it's a part of the struggle within Protestantism. Now, why is that? Why was that? And why is it? today, because, as Ellen White puts it in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 55, she says, whatever contradicts God's word, we may be sure proceeds from Satan. And speaking of the early church, the book of Acts says, chapter 2, verse 46, and chapter 4, verses 32 and 33, it reads, Continuing daily with one accord and singleness of heart, 
the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony and great grace was upon them all. But Satan, the enemy of God's church, was determined to destroy its unity and soon divisions and schisms rent the early church. And that's still Satan's strategy. Now, if you don't think he wants to destroy this church and its witness, big mistake. And he will use sometimes the most, what shall I say, innocent issue to do that. That's still his strategy. And that call for unity in the midst of Satan's attacks, which came under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brought about exhortations like these that I read from Paul and Peter and others, because a disunited church is a powerless church. Listen to these Bible passages. Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. He says, finally, aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Philippians 2.2 Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. What does the phrase, the same mind, mean? He gives the answer in verses 5 and 8 of Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Obedient to what? To the word and will of God, of course. No division in full agreement and unified by the truth of God's word is essential for this church in this time. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a lamp, a light, shows me the way to go. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. And then, listen, 
do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. And here's another one from Philippians chapter 2. Verses 14 and six to 16. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Confusion. And that's where we are today. Our children are confused today. The kind of things they're, they're faced with, especially in the public schools. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 2 Timothy, I think I, I have the wrong reference. Anyway, the verse is, quote, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Pardon? Is that 2 Timothy 3.16? Anyway, 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. Those who do not believe stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. In other words, if you disobey the word, you're destined to stumble. 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. In Revelation 22, 7, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Matthew 5, verses 14 and 16. You are the light of the world. That is God's people. That's you and me. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, all of the reformers that have been mentioned this week and others, including the Waldensians, they didn't have all of the light. Not even Luther had all of the light. But they were firmly united on what Ellen White calls the grand principle. And that's the title of our session today, what I'm sharing with you. The grand principle. She writes, Great Controversy, page 249. The grand principle maintained by these reformers was Listen, the infallible authority of the Holy Scriptures as a rule of faith and practice. The Bible was their authority. 
and by its teaching they tested all doctrines and all claims. Now, I was pleased by the fact that she did not hesitate to use the term infallible. Some people don't like that term as used with respect to the scriptures. They call those who hold to the infallibility of the Bible fundamentalists. I remember Professor Tom Blinko at the seminary at, at, in one discussion that I was in, uh, attending where this was criticized, the infallibility, the word infallibility. And he said, and the, the word fundamentalist was used, and he said, what's wrong with being a fundamentalist? Now, she didn't hesitate to use that word. That's the grand principle, the infallible authority of the Holy Scriptures, which means that it's incapable of error, it is unerring regarding faith and morals. It will not mislead or deceive. And what it says is God's truth. Now, what I have shared with you all week here represents the foundation of my spiritual heritage and which eventually compelled me to join the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Those of you that have read or are going to read my latest book, The Road I Travel, those of you who have read it will remember the section in which I talk about Finnish Christianity. So if you've read that, you understand my and my wife's spiritual heritage. And which is precisely the foundation that made it possible for us to eventually become Adventists. When the Lord got my attention, And I, I mentioned that yesterday, when my wife became a Seventh-day Adventist. It was like I was hit over the head with a two-by-four to get my attention. I said I likened it to Moses and the burning bush. A bush was I used to wonder years, years ago, why was the bush burning? It was because God had something he wanted to say to Moses and he had something he wanted him to do, and that's the way he got his attention. And he does that sometimes. You may have had this, a similar experience, or something unusual, or even of a crisis nature has occurred in your life, in order to get your attention. Now, by way of illustration, I want to put everything that we have talked about into the contemporary context in which the Seventh-day Adventist Church finds itself. I'm going to venture on sensitive ground because I believe it's important in staying true to the Word of God. And the context that I'm referring to is the ordination issue and the disunity that threatens the mission of the church. And really, the ordination issue is not the main issue. That's why I titled my book in which I discussed this, The Tip of an Iceberg, because the ordination issue is just the tip. Beneath it is the most dangerous part 
of an iceberg. It's the submerged portion. And what I try to point out in my book is that the real issue is what we call hermeneutics, or the way the Bible is interpreted. And now, within the last couple of years, as a result of the Theology of Ordination Study Committee sessions, which I was involved in, the hermeneutical issue is now out in the open. And we're going to look at three Bible texts that are crucial to the issue. But first, before we do that, I want to review the principles of Bible interpretation or hermeneutics that God has given to this church by means of the spirit of prophecy. Now, a lot of folks don't really realize how fortunate Seventh-day Adventist believers are because we don't have to come up with our own principles of interpretation. God has already given them to us, and we're going to look at those. The first one is, take the Bible as it reads. Listen to what she says. This is from Great Controversy, page 88. And I always marvel at, as I mentioned, the choice of words that Ellen White uses. Because when you read it carefully and think about the words, it becomes so clear that the spiritual essence of what she's talking about becomes clear. She says, the truths most plainly revealed in the Bible have been involved in doubt and darkness by learned men who, with a pretense of great wisdom, teach that the scriptures have a mystical, a secret, spiritual meaning not apparent in the language employed. And she goes on, if men would, would but take the Bible as it reads, if there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse their minds, a work would be accomplished that would make angels glad, unquote. Take the Bible as it reads. Second principle, focus on the Bible's plain statements. Listen to this. This is from the Review and Herald, January 27, 1885. She says, quote, men ignore the plain statements of the Bible to follow their own perverted reason, priding themselves on their intellectual attainments, they overlook the simplicity of truth." Unquote. That's found in the Review and Herald, January 27, 1885. So, first principle, take the Bible as it reads. Second principle, focus on the Bible's plain statements. And then the third one, Great Controversy, page 598. Language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning. Now, in the throes of coming into this church, 
I was thrilled when I read those simple, uncomplicated principles. And by the way, I, I may have mentioned this already this week, but when you look at the makeup of the group that we referred to as the pioneers, those people that they came from many different churches, Methodists, Baptists, even Lutherans, to discuss the Bible and to pray and to eventually came up with the foundational truths that we hold as Seventh-day Adventists. But it's, it's fascinating when you realize that there was not one PhD in that group. They were all laymen. They just had the Bible, their belief in the Bible's authority, their personal salvation. They prayed together, they discussed, and their discussions were lively. But they came to that unity of faith and understanding that eventually developed into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And there was not one scholar, PhD, among them. You don't... See, these principles that Ellen White articulated are easy to understand. They're not complicated, and they, they're easy. They can be applied by any person who believes that the Bible is the Word of God, who reads it in faith, trusts its counsel, seeks to understand it, and is determined to live by its truth. You don't need advanced academic degrees or training in the biblical languages to use Ellen White's three principles and in doing so arrive at valid and trustworthy conclusions. Luther once remarked that a farmer with a Bible in his hands has more wisdom than all of the bishops in the church put together. You could include scholars in that statement. Now, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the light of these principles. Starting with the first verse. The saying is trustworthy. By the way, I'm using the English Standard Version. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Now, it says, if anyone, if anyone, that is, any person, aspires, that is, seeks to obtain the office. Notice it's an office, a position of authority 
in order to exercise a specific function of overseer. That's who Paul is addressing himself to. Anyone who wants that office. The Greek term here for overseer, translated overseer, is episkopos, as it also is in Titus chapter 1. We'll look at that in another in a minute. It's translated, episkopos is translated overseer in the English Standard Version. It's also translated bishop in the King James Version and the Revised Standard Version. Now, let me ask you, what is the obvious meaning of the language? Now, when you read the whole text, as you noticed, the pronouns, all of the pronouns, could either be translated he or she, but only if you ignore the whole context. But in order to be accurate and not mislead the reader, you have to use, the translator has to use masculine pronouns. They must be used. Why? Because the key to that question is found in the phrase, husband of one wife, which also can be translated man of one woman. Because Paul says that, all of the pronouns must be in the masculine gender. That person must be, must be. In other words, has to be the husband of one wife above reproach. Now, husband of one wife is not a qualification. It is a prerequisite. Starts with that. What is the obvious meaning? The office of overseer, which is a spiritual leader holding an office and having a specific function. Bishop, pastor, elder, must be a man. Is that right or wrong? That's the obvious meaning of the language. Now, I have read in the process of this whole issue, papers prepared that take pages and pages and pages to try to convince the reader that it doesn't mean what it says. The intent is clear here. So every pronoun in the passage referring to that person must be translated and understood as referring to a male. And this is prerequisite to all of the other qualifications. By no stretch of the imagination could it be made to read wife of one husband or person of one person. So to conclude that Paul's use of masculine language here does not preclude the possibility of women serving in that office is just hypothetical. It's not what the text says. In other words, and it defies logic by denying Paul's statement of fact. Now turn to Titus, chapter 1.
By the way, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are the three epistles that we call the pastoral epistles. Now, we're going to read in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Well, let's begin with verse 5. Paul is writing to Titus, a young disciple of, of Paul's. And he says, this is why I left you in Crete. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean. Why did he leave him there? So that you might put what remained into order. In other words, the church needs to be organized. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, he's repeating his language from 1 Timothy. The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, again the word was episcopus, as God's steward, one who takes care of, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now here, Paul clearly identifies overseers as elders. It is, it's obvious that elders does not refer to any older person, male or female, who is already recognized as a person with authority among the believers. How do we know that? Because the plain language says that an elder is to be the husband of one wife, not the wife of one husband or the spouse of one spouse. What's the obvious meaning again? Repeated now twice in the New Testament. First, the elder is to be a male. Second, he is to be married to a woman, not another man, and to only one woman. In other words, the spiritual leader holding the office of overseer, bishop, pastor, elder in every town is to be a man who upholds God's standards for the institution of marriage. Now, why do I say that? Because when you read Paul's own bio biography in the Bible, you see that he, was, he himself was not married, but he was ordained. So, the meaning is that the elder is not only to be a male, but married to a woman, and he should uphold God's standards for the institution of marriage. That's not complicated or difficult to understand. He, he says that this person is to be a man who must hold firm to the trustworthy word and be faithful to, hold to, and teach the word of God without fear and without compromise. Now, when I share this with you, I'm not being a grumpy old man, which was implied in a sermon preached 
by one of our well-known preachers. In other words, his ministry, this overseer, rests on the authority of the Bible alone, not on tradition or on the demands of current culture at any time or any place. And that is the obvious contextual meaning of Paul's language. Ellen White is faithful to her own principles of interpretation as well as to the what, what we might call the biblical trajectory when she says in Acts of the Apostles, page 95, in the work of setting things in order in all the churches and ordaining suitable men to act as officers, the apostles held to the high standards of leadership outlined in the Old Testament scriptures. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Now, look at Galatians 3.28. This is the third text. This is the text that is quoted so often by individuals who want to convince us that Paul doesn't mean what he says in 1 Timothy and Titus. Galatians 3.28. It reads, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Oh boy, there it is. There is neither male nor female. No distinction. So, does this verse present a principle that eliminates all gender distinctions? No. Look at the context. Look at verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Verse 27. For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptized, justification by faith, baptized into Christ. That's the context. He's not talking about church order. He's talking about salvation. In his instructions to Timothy and Titus, Concerning the organization of congregation, congregations, was Paul simply reflecting the culture of his times? Expressing his personal opinion? Being a male chauvinist? Or was he exercising his apostolic authority? when he wrote that. He writes what he says about male-female roles in the church. By the way, have any of you been sitting in on Dr. Wallin's presentations? Because he's talking about some of this same thing. He writes, Paul writes what he says about male-female roles in the church. 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, So that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. And he appeals to the order of creation. 1 Timothy 2.13, that Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And when he does that, he affirms male, the male headship principle that was established by God at creation. And he's saying that that order of creation is the reason why men are given 
the primary role of spiritual leadership in the church. That's what he says. What he says is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's not just his personal opinion. It's not just reflecting the culture of the times. Therefore, the language that Paul uses is not irrelevant and meaningless, and it cannot be ignored. Furthermore, the culture of his time or ours is not a trustworthy principle of Bible interpretation. Why? Because culture changes all the time. Listen to this from Early Writings, page 96. Numberless words need not be put on paper to justify what speaks for itself and shines in its clearness. Truth is straight, plain, clear, and stands out boldly in its own defense. But it is not so with error. Error is so winding and twisting that it needs a multitude of words to explain it in its crooked form. Early Writings, page 96. And then First Selected Messages, page 181, she says, let the plain, simple statements of the Word of God be food for the mind. This speculating upon ideas that are not clearly presented there is dangerous business. So finally, speaking of himself as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God, that is one who cares for and uh, protects. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. In other words, that they can be depended on to stay true to the word of God. And he applied that to himself in verse 6. And he says, for your benefit, for the benefit of the church, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you be puffed up in favor of one against the other. So it's as stewards of the word of God. That's what we are. The mysteries of God. It's our duty to affirm and sustain the biblical trajectory that began before the fall in which 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are obviously faithful and not go beyond what is written in the scriptures. And it's also our duty to protect our beloved church from a hermeneutical disaster. Because that's what it would be. It would open the door to same-sex marriage. All, a lot of stuff that culture is putting extreme pressure on us to accept. To ask if Paul really means that an elder is a man brings to mind the serpent's question to Eve in Genesis 3.1. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, doubt, you begin to doubt what he says. Doubt leads to disbelief and then to disobedience, which is the devil's intended consequence. It becomes easy to disobey and then to convince other people to do the same. Jesus asked, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Faith in what? In God's love, his grace, his mercy, and his redeeming, transforming power. 
his word? Let's paraphrase that and ask, when Jesus comes, will he find faithfulness in his church? Faithful to what? His word, his will, his truth. Remember Luther's famous words, here I stand. I can't do anything else, he said. My conscience is captive to the word of God. That's what the Bible says. Now, in closing, I want to do something that I've never done before. It's long overdue. And this is why I persuaded my dear wife to be here today. I want to pay tribute to her. When I share my story, the, most of the focus is on me and my struggle. But it was hard for her too. Because as she learned the truth, by the way, she was a, she's been a student of the Bible, a lover of God's word, dedicated to God's word since she was in her teens, early teens. Yes. She was not being, just being stubborn. And it was difficult for her too because she stood firm at great risk. And I'm going to say something that I'd never talk about but it's part of the story and it's vital part. I was counseled by at least two, possibly three, Lutheran leaders that I need to give her an ultimatum and force her to make a decision, either the Adventist church or her marriage. I resisted that for a long time, but it came to a head one day, and I'll never forget that day either, when I did that. I told her, you have to make a choice now. My ministry was collapsing. So. And she very bravely made her choice, walked out of the house, our little girl, adopted daughter, was playing in the front yard and she took her hand and began walking down the street. I saw her from the front window, I saw her go. Where would she have gone? What would she have done? And God spoke to me, I believe it was from him. I couldn't let her go. The first, the thought came into my mind, said, don't forget, you made your marriage vows before you made your ordination vows. In other words, my vow to God concerning my marriage, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, so on, was more important, came first, than my ordination vow. So I... I can't remember, did I get in the car? I got in the car and drove down the street and stopped and called out, come on, get in the car. And she did. It was more like, get in. <laughs> <laughs> now, the reason I want to pay tribute to her is because if she had not stayed true in spite of the risk, I wouldn't be here today probably. And who knows what would have happened in the long run. And when I think back on it, if it had gone the other way, I would have missed so many blessings. Everything that God has 
allowed us to do travels around the world, teach in the seminary. Unbelievable. Who would have thought of that? So, this is the way I want to close the seminar by paying tribute to my dear wife. We've been married now 62 years. Amen. So, thank you. Any comments or questions? And I have a volunteer to close. Comment? Uh, he said, sometimes God has to save us kicking and screaming into his church. Yes. I don't know how to comment on that. But we still, we still protest. Yeah. That's all right. You want to think that way? That's fine. Sounds good. So what you're saying is that we are apostolic believers. There, there is a group of Lutheran people that are called apostolic Lutherans. Probably the most conservative branch of Lutheranism. But they don't keep the Saturday Sabbath. Any other comments? Well, first of all, we're in the midst of the debate. And the issue of local elders has yet to be dealt with. It is now being intensely discussed because it has to be dealt with. Um, also, I don't know if this is really relevant to your question or not, but some people have asked, what about Ellen White? She was a woman, but she was a prophet. And there were women prophets in, 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 the, in the Bible. And who chooses prophets? The church? No, God. So her authority was direct from God. And she proved it by her ministry. The authority of the male minister is derived from Christ, who is the head of the church. The authority of a woman who is serving in the church is delegated by the pastor who, whose authority is derived from Christ. We have in our church in Bessemer a lady who is an outstanding Sabbath school teacher. She's also an excellent preacher. And I ask her to preach at least twice a year. I exercising my authority and delegating that to her. You can be a leader in a church, a spiritual leader, without ordination. But when it comes to the office of spiritual leader, headship, overseer, it's reserved for, for, for men. That's what the Bible says. You know, we're not, I'm not just being anti-feminine. The Bible isn't anti-feminine. You read God's role for, for you ladies, it's superlative. You have a superlative mission and ministry as wives and mothers. So this is not a matter of denigrating you ladies. It's not that at all. Because we need to have the utmost love and respect for the women in our church. 
And frankly, the women do more work than men when it comes to ministry. Isn't that true, men? So, you know, let's put it in, in, in the right perspective. This is not a matter of being unjust or unkind or restrictive. It's not it. It's a matter of being in harmony with God's word and do things the way he has outlined in here. Because then he blesses. He can bless. All right, we got to close, but I want to say this one more thing. As I was thinking about doing a seminar, especially on the Reformation, I debated for quite a while about whether I should include during the last day what I shared with you today. And I was convicted, convinced by, I think, the Holy Spirit to do it because this issue, the, the, the lay folks like you need to understand the nature of the real issue that we're facing here. And, and you folks need to rise up. And by that, I don't mean agitate, you know, ca cause a riot, you know, stuff like that. What I mean is you need to bear your witness. The word of your testimony is important. It can't all be done on the leadership level. Besides, we need your help. The leadership needs your help. We need your strength behind us. So whenever it comes up in your church, speak your mind. You know, don't be angry or, you know, mean about it. But speak your mind. Just say, this is what the Bible says. Let's do what God says. That's what we, we should be doing. And that will have a powerful effect. So what we need right now is we need the Lord to light a fire under you folks, under the laity. All right, let's have a volunteer to pray, please. Father in heaven, we pray that you will lead your church. We need to see this work finished up. We need to be the people you want us to be. Dear God, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.